Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Carrier. Turn to the experts. Angelo, how are you today? Hi, sir. Thank you. I enjoy listening to your show. Thank you. The question I have is I own a uh, two-story wood frame house in the Houston area, in the Heights area. And considering having the entire house exterior repainted in Houston, what do you recommend as far as a good time of year to do this? You sent me an email, Angelo. Yes, sir, I did. Yes, sir. I I saw it this morning. Uh, You know, here's the thing you got to watch. If it gets too hot, and by too hot, I mean really when we start crossing that triple digit line, uh, the paint dries too fast. Okay. It, and if it gets too cold, and really that's not a big issue here in Houston, uh, but if it starts dropping below typically 55, then it doesn't dry fast enough. The ideal temperatures are normally between 75 and 80, but usually you're all right until you hit triple digits. Okay. All right. Very good. That's kind of what I need to know. So I think I'll probably wait till about October or so and not not do anything right now. I will tell you, if you want to get the best pricing on it, yes, sir. Mo- most contractors have a hard time filling their schedules for the month of December because uh, come the end of November, nobody wants them working on their houses for Thanksgiving and nobody wants them because they're putting Christmas decorations out until the end of the year when they take their Christmas decorations down. So that dead zone in there, that's where you get the best deals on getting a paint job done. All right. Thank you. I appreciate the advice, sir. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Right. And, you know, that's with all contractors. They have their peak times. They have their down times. And it's a matter of figuring out where it's at if you want to get the best possible deals. This is an email that came from Wayne in Houston. We have picked the granite slab, but concerned about how to protect our cost in case of the slab being broken in transportation by contractor or during its fabrication. What granite thickness should we use to be installed on first floor? Also, what type of insurance to require from contractor for this job? Less than $10,000. Well, typically once the contractor takes possession of the stone, it's going to be theirs if they break it. It's kind of like going through a store. You break it, you buy it. Uh, But as far as thickness, you know, some of the contractors, or I shouldn't say contractors, some of the manufacturers have gone down to three centimeter thickness of granite. Stick with the five or better. Uh, When it gets that thin, it does get too easy to break it. Uh, And by that, I mean even if you drop a glass on it once, once it's installed, you can break it. Now, the thicker the better. Less worry about it breaking and everything. Uh, The thing you got to remember with dealing with contractors 
not all of them carry insurances. And you ask what type of insurance. You want to make sure they have general liability um, and you want to make sure that they have workers' comp. So general liability is in case something happens to the house, the workers' comp in case something happens to one of the individuals. The problem that you're talking about, though, is when pr the product is within their possession, how to protect it. And that's just something that they have to do on their end. And if they're not willing to take control of it and, and protect it, you probably need to find a different contractor. This comes from Danny, and he has a question. House on blocks, water standing underneath. What kind of contractor do I need? That is typically handled by a foundation repair contractor. It's a drainage issue. You got to get the water out from under the house. And there's a couple ways of doing it. One is to find the low spot under the house, dig a pit, put a pump in it, that has a float switch so that it turns on and off as water gets in there. The other, which I actually prefer the other method better, is to actually dig up underneath the, the house to that same low spot and install a catch basin drain and have the water drain into a sump pump that's not under the house. And the reason I prefer that method, you're able to check the pump and repair the pump so much easier. Especially if the pump goes out, nobody's going to want to crawl underneath there when it's full of water to change a broken pump. By having it in a sump pit out from under the house, it's able to be worked on and handled a lot better. So you're thinking about selling your home, and you're thinking you need to do a whole bunch of improvements to the home in order to sell it. Well, quite frankly, right now especially, it is a seller's market. And... Something you need to keep in mind when you're doing repairs or home improvements to a house, you don't typically get back everything you put into it. Now, if it's to upgrade the curb appeal, absolutely. Uh, James Hardy siding, though, is a, is a great example. It upgrade, upgrades your curb appeal, and it gives you one of the best returns back as far as money that you're putting in to get your money back out for it. But even it doesn't give you 100%. The upgrades typically make it where your house sells faster and easier. But if you're thinking about, you know, doing something like siding or redoing a kitchen or bathroom or, you know, new flooring and all this kind of stuff in order to upgrade and make more with the home, let's just say you spend $10,000 which is not a realistic budget. That's way low. But let's say you spent $10,000. You're likely to only get six or seven of that back. So does it really make financial sense to do that stuff? Typically what you're better off doing is painting, cleaning, and make the place look presentable in order to make the most money in your pocket. Patricia, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Thank you for taking my call. I live on seven acres, and I want to build a little recreation center for myself and my grandkids to play basketball and whatnot indoors. And I'm torn okay. between building it either one of these steel ready-made sort of buildings or from traditional lumber. Which is the best way to go? I'm assuming you're outside of city codes, correct? That's correct. Okay. 
I personally love traditional lumber, but I will tell you up front, the metal buildings are going to be cheaper and more than likely will last longer and better because they can design those to whatever wind loads you want to put them against. Uh, the traditional construction materials, if you go with a regular wood-type construction, uh, you know, wood is getting very expensive nowadays, and especially if you're going to build it tall enough to be able to play basketball in it and things like that. So uh, what size building are we talking about? Like a 30 by 40 we or 40, 60? Mm -hmm, 40 by 60, yes. Yeah, definitely. For a 40 by 60, I would take a look at a, at a metal building. Uh, Mueller makes a really nice ones. In fact, I've got a 40 by 60 Mueller myself. Uh, Whirlwind, there, there are several manufacturers, but uh, your cost factor, and if you ever want to do anything else with it, it makes it pretty simple when you go with the metal buildings. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You bet. Take care. In fact, I want to put up a shop at my house, and they don't allow metal buildings where I live. And I wish they did, because that would be my choice to put up a metal building there. This comes from Derek, and he's asking about a home addition. I'd like a cost range for adding first floor bedroom and bathroom about 600 feet to include slab, plumbing, etc. Well... There's a huge range because it depends on how you're going to finish it out. Uh, bathroom, for instance. Are you going to do tile or are you going to do linoleum? Are you going to do a uh, fiberglass tub surround or shower, walk-in shower? Or are you going to do a gorgeous stone walk-in shower uh, and a separate jacuzzi tub? So all these things can make a big difference, but... To give you kind of a ballpark range, you can figure you're going to start, because of having a bathroom in there, somewhere in the range of 120 to $170 a square foot. And right now, I hear a thousand people going, oh my God, why so much per square foot? Because the key factor on this, 600 square feet. Truthfully, if you build bigger, like you're building a house, you're going to get that cost down to anywhere from 78 to to $100 a square foot and up depending on your finished product. But because when you're doing just a bedroom and a bathroom, there is so much in such a small confined area, it shoots the cost per square foot way up. So if I was to put a budget on it, that would be the range that I would put on it. And what the contractors are going to do is they're going to you know, pick out a grade and, and bid it accordingly. If you wanted to bid a project like this out, what I would suggest is you get together plans so that you can give each contractor the same specs and let them bid on it accordingly. And then make sure that they carry insurance make sure they have uh you know people who are going to be on the job the whole time because let's face it most contractors are using subcontractors it it's a lot of it's done that way 
but they need to have their people there supervising. So if something does go wrong, they're not just shoving it back saying, oh, well, that's not our fault. That was XYZ sub. That's not your problem. You hired them to oversee the job and make sure everything was done accordingly. Just a reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. I have a three-foot-high railroad tie retaining wall, 72-foot-long, built in 1983 in my backyard. My neighbor has a six-foot-high, 15-year-old plastic wall adjoining my wall. His fence is above my fence. My 36-year-old retaining wall has moved and is failing down due to the natural flow of water. Maybe the pool built 36 years ago by the neighbor at the time has caused the water problem. Is this a true statement? If I repair my retaining wall and my neighbor's fence moves or collapse, am I responsible? Is this a true statement? Well, you got a lot going on there. The swimming pool absolutely could be causing problem if it has a leak. Now, if that pool was put in 36 years ago and it doesn't have a leak, no, that's not causing your retaining wall to fail. Uh, you got to remember, a, a railroad tie retaining wall is not a permanent retaining wall. The railroad ties, they tend to rot out over time. And if this thing's been in there 36 years, you got more time out of it than most people do. So you may be just looking at having to replace it. Uh, one thing I will tell you is railroad ties are no longer used for retaining walls, mostly because they do deteriorate, and the creosote on them tends to contaminate the soil. And so we don't use retaining walls any longer. They pretty much have been banned in the state for retaining walls. Typically, you're gonna, either going to use a stackable-type block, uh, like Versalock, so there's several different brands out there. Or you're going to build a stone wall, and you got to make sure there's drainage behind it. The kiss of death for retaining walls is more wall that starts building on the soil, puts pressure on the wall, and starts to push them over. And that's typically what kills most retaining walls. So at 36 years old, yeah, it's time to probably start thinking about what you're going to do with it to get a new retaining wall. Uh, as far as the being responsible for the neighbor's fence, honestly, if his fence comes right to where your wall is, there will be no way to replace the wall more than likely without taking the fence down. Because when you replace the wall, you're going to have to, one, pull the wall down, two, more than likely dig back behind it just a little bit to put proper drainage. And by a little bit, typically on a three-foot wall that you're talking about, if a person goes back just a foot, that's usually enough. Now on his wall, where you're talking six-foot high, now you're talking about bringing engineers in to design it because it's going to have to have tiebacks to hold it back and things like that. Anything over four-foot tall on a retaining wall, must be engineered. And if you have a contractor coming out willing to do it who's not getting it engineered, you have a contractor who's going to also shortcut on the wall and he's going to you're going to have a problem with it down the road. So, uh stick with 
doing it the, the way it's supposed to be, anything over four foot gets engineered. And that's not uh, just me saying that. That's most cities have it in their code that way. I can tell you the, the manufacturers of the different materials for the walls say it that way. That's the standard. Uh, as far as that fence, though, like I said, that's something that you and your neighbor will have to work out. Uh, typically on the walls that I replace, I see that the, uh, the neighbor who has the fence is normally the one who has to replace it because they're concerned that they're losing their yard due to the retaining wall as well. So in your situation, it sounds like you would be responsible for the wall, he would be responsible for the fence. Keep in mind, retaining walls are typically on the property line, and so that can go either way as well. In a lot of cases, it's negotiable who's going to pay and how much on a retaining wall. Uh, so this is definitely one of those things you're going to want to talk with your neighbor about. Fritz, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Howdy, Jim. Thank you for uh, taking my call. I uh, am uh, buying a house here in Conroe. You had a previous caller talking about a flat roof. And on yes. this same house, we have a flat roof that is also a, a deck. And it's deteriorating. I was wondering what kind of materials you would use on a walkable uh, deck that is also a flat roof. Oh, that's a good one. So when you say it's a walkable deck, is the deck built up on top of the roof, or are you using the roofing material as the deck top? Well, uh, currently there's a it's like a back porch with a flat roof above it that's a, a deck to the upstairs bedroom. Does that oh, make gotcha. Sense? Okay. Yes. You know, typically uh, when I'm doing something like that, I use concrete, and what I do is build build a uh, platform up there you use a rubber liner under the concrete and then use a lightweight concrete on top of that you can have the concrete where it slopes so the water runs off but any moisture that does travel through the concrete then gets onto that rubber liner which again has a slope and a drain off the edge of the house aha uh -huh. that's fantastic how thick does the concrete need to be two inches okay minimum if you can go to three, so. you're, you're, you're better off. The whole key on making that work, though, is how it's flashed at the house. Uh, you've got to make sure that the rubber material comes up underneath the siding of the house to seal it and make sure that, that there's no water that penetrates into your walls that way. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for that, Jim. I sure appreciate the good answer. This comes from Travis. And he's actually in Laporte, Texas. I just moved into a house that was built in 1998. The house is all brick, but I noticed that on one side of the house, there is a space between the brick and the soffit on the corners. The space is about the size of a half dollar. It looks like everything is original. Not sure if this is normal or needs attention. Thank you for your help in advance. Well, there typically is some space between the soffit and the brick. Uh, and that's usually why there's a 1x2 or 1x4 trim that hangs down over the brick, and that's just to cover that space up. A lot of people don't realize, but the brick is nothing more than a veneer. 
It really is not a structural part of most homes. In order for the brick to be structural for the home, it'd be supporting parts of the home. And typically, the way houses are built, and this is this is the norm for houses. Yes, there are true structural brick homes. And most of the time, if that's the case, you'll see brick on the inside and outside of the wall. But on the most homes, the way they're built, you got the two by four stud, that is the structure of the home. The brick veneer is put on on the outside and there's usually about an inch, inch and a half gap between the stud and the brick veneer. And so the brick runs all the way up to where the soffits are. But yes, there's normally just a little space left up there that's covered up with trim boards. So if you're seeing the top of that, uh, chances are good maybe your trim board is bad or some of the brick has come off. And you know, a lot of times if you're dealing with an older home, you can actually walk up and push on the brick and you can feel it shaking and moving. That's pretty normal as well, but it does become a little scary. The closet that hooks to the master bathroom has water on the floor. There is no water on the walls, just in the middle of the closet. The bedroom on the other side has water in the middle too. Nothing on sheetrock. I assume it is related to the shower, but how do we fix it? Well, I hate to tell you this, but it probably isn't related to the shower. It's more than likely moisture coming up through the concrete. Now, depending on how the home was built, water pipes either run overhead, like if you're down in the Houston area, or if you're in the Dallas area, they run them through the slab. So it could be that, but more than likely what's causing it is with all the rains we've been having over the last year, the soils are so saturated under homes, there's a lot of moisture that's coming up through the concrete and causing problems. And the reason it comes up in the middle of the rooms, that's typically the thinnest concrete. You know, uh, most foundations are built on a grid pattern or there's beams that follow the load-bearing walls. The middle of the room typically is just four-inch thick concrete. And so that's the easiest for the moisture to come up through it. And yes, most foundations have plastic under them as a vapor barrier or moisture barrier, but that was originally put there to keep the concrete from drying too fast when it's poured. Now we install it to try to keep moisture from coming up through the soil. But when they originally started using the plastic under them, it was strictly there to slow the drying process of the concrete when it's poured. So uh, the first thing I would do is look outside to see if you've got standing water anywhere when it's raining. Get that addressed. Keep the, the soil sloping away from the foundation so you don't have puddles near the foundation. And then beyond that, you may end up looking at some French drains or something to keep the moisture out. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.